Okay, well, let, let's jump into it because we got quite a lot to cover. How, how many of you guys took my encouragement from last week and have started reading ahead to see where we're going? Anybody by show of hands? Okay, we got one in the back, Daryl. Thank you. Okay, one person did. So one person knows that I'm in more trouble than I was in last week. Uh, and the rest of you guys are going to find that out here in just a second. Uh, no, this, this is challenging text this morning. There, there is a lot to unpack, but God's word is good and it's true and it's given to us for our benefit. And so anytime that we can look at a text and go, man, I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what I ought to do with that. There's an opportunity to match that up against our lives and for God's word to come out on top as we seek to obey and as we seek to walk with him. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to start in verse 26. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. So there in verse 26, it says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there was no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace." As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, see, now you guys know why I'm in trouble. All right, so we can move on, and we're going we're gonna to deal with this, and we're going to actually spend a lot of our time here and unpack this. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. As if there is anyone or anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forget, forbid speaking in tongues, but in all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for its truth. Lord, we thank you for uh, the way that uh, it represents your heart, Lord. And, and, and Lord, as we marry these things up with uh, the things that we hear from the world and the things that we see in culture and the things that are even inside our own hearts, Lord, would your word prevail? Lord, would the truth of it, Lord, that has lasted all these millennia, Lord, be the thing that changes our hearts and minds? Lord, fill us with your spirit. Illuminate your word for us today, Lord, and help us to leave this place changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Such an interesting thing, as we get toward the end of 1 Corinthians, we start to see Paul wrap up some of the things that he's been doing over the course of the book. And you, you know, as we talked about numerous times, the church in Corinth has written to him, and they've inquired about the things that were going on in the church, many of them terrible, confusing, sinful things. And as he's written back to them, he spent most of the book trying to correct their theology, helping them to rightly look at the issues that they're debating over, right? Rather than just saying, do this or do that, he's been leading them on a path to better understand the things that they are struggling with. 
But here, as we get into chapter 14, as we looked, started to look at with tongues last week, but as we look at with some of these other things this week, he starts to give them some explicit instruction. You want to know how to make sure that your church is being built up, which he has already said is the purpose of the body, the building up of the body, do these things. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I, I need both, right? I, I need Help me see why we should do this, but also give me some instruction. If we just abide by these things, how we can be healthy. And that's what we start to see in this passage as we begin to wrap up some of these things that he's taught on. And just as a reminder, I want us to to create for ourselves a mental picture of what the church in Corinth was like that he is writing to. Because we might start with a presupposition that the, the room that he's writing to is people that are like this. Like we're all gathered around a central area. We're neatly seated in rows and uh, one person is doing all of the teaching. But from what he is writing, we can see clearly that that's not the case. In fact, you know, probably the church is, you know, more like this area right here. Um, and furthermore, we got a person in the back who probably ate all the Lord's Supper because he was hungry. He got there before everybody else. And, you know, I mean, Paul wrote to them explicitly about that. And so he's got a plate full of stuff and everybody else is starving. And we got two or three people who drank all the communion wine and now they're drunk laying on the floor. He wrote to them about that as well. And as the service starts, you know, maybe Rusty stands up and he has a song that he wants to sing, right? And so Rusty stands up and sings sings a song, but uh, but you know that reminds Karen of a song that she knows, and she wants to stand up and sing the song too. Um, and so she stands up and sings a song before Rusty even finishes. And then you know we've got Dylan over here. He stands up and starts speaking in tongues, and because Dylan is speaking in tongues, then you know. Wayne wants to start speaking in tongues. It's like, oh, if he's doing it, like, I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden, we got six people speaking in tongues all at the same time, nobody interpreting. And what do you have? Chaos. And something that is ineffective for building up the body of Christ. And it's into that circumstance that Paul is seeking to provide the wisdom that we see today about how we ought to meet in this assembly. And so I want you guys to see that a church walking in the ways of the Lord observes instructions for, and we're going to look at just a few things. It's going to be, again, a brief outline this week because I want you guys to dig into the text and see what God has to say and not what I have to say. But first and foremost, for encouragement and for orderliness, right? There is an instruction in here that orderliness ought to be part of what dictates what happens in worship. Now, that doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be programmed to the nth degree so that there is no flexibility, but part of the reason we're able to function in this room this morning is because Kimberly isn't waiting for any moment thinking that I might call her up here to sing, right? She knows whether she's supposed to sing or not. And, and Austin isn't waiting for me to sit down and be like, oh, why don't you come teach something, right? Like, you guys didn't walk in here with that impression this morning because there's an order. And, and look at what Paul tells us. 
We're going to start right there in that first section. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. We, we all have different gifts that we've been given. We've been over this. We've, we beat this horse to death as we talked about the body and the gifts and the things that have come from the Holy Spirit. But we just need to recognize as we come into this place, we've been given, all of us, different gifts by that same Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Christ, and to, in different degrees, in two def, different measures. And so we come into this place having been gifted differently. There is a reason why when Aaron's out of town, he asks me to teach. But when Kevin's out of town, he doesn't ask me to come sing. Because none of you would want to be here. <laughs> it's not in my giftedness. Okay, and so he says when you guys come together, you know, some of you might have a song or a hymn. And one of you might have a lesson or some other revelation or a tongue or an interpretation of that tongue. We've been given different gifts. But alongside those different gifts, we have to recognize one of the things that we carry in with us this morning is also different preferences, right? As we look at those, that list of things, we, you know, we know that there's some in there that when I walk into a service, some of those things minister more to me than others. I, in fact, even though I'm a terrible singer, I love to sing. I, I love to walk into a service and especially to see a song where the words of the song are straight out of scripture, I, I, will, I will sing that all day long until everybody covers their ears. Because that's part of my preference. It's part of how God has designed me. Others of you walk in and you, you, know, you hear a, a passage of scripture being read and you're like, man, that really has ministered to me or a prayer offered. Or you might see in the mission moment us talk about something that's happening somewhere in the world or right here in our community. And, and that ministers to you because that's part of how you prefer to receive information. But thank God that those, we, we don't only do what you prefer, right? Can we all recognize that a service where we only do what one person has been gifted at and what one person prefers is not a service that ministers to everybody? And it's also not a service that displays the character of God because we recognize that these gifts come from God and he's not just one of those things. He's not just a God who is creative and expresses himself through songs that he puts on people's hearts. And he's not just a God of truth and honor, although he is those things. And that doesn't just come out in his word, but it does. It comes out in all kinds of places. And part of the way that we exemplify the body of Christ and the image of Christ that we've been created in is in a service that is multifaceted. It shows the different characteristics of God. And so he says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. But then he gives us a criteria. Let all of those things be done for building up. So no matter what we're going to do in that list, no matter what we're going to do in the list that he just gave or in the things that we're about to read, let all of them be done for the building up of the body. And we've talked about this theme, but I, I just wanna, I wanna ask you, and we're gonna be a little bit busy this morning flipping to some other passages because uh, the rest of scripture helps us illuminate scripture even further. I wanna ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter four because there's not a, there's not a passage that speaks more clearly 
to what the obligations are on us as we're being built up and on the leaders of our church as we're being built up than this one. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 11, it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the working up of the ministry. And there it is again, for building up of the body of Christ. Okay, to, to what end? Until we all attain to the unity of faith. Okay, so unity of faith. And to the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, and to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we're all conformed fully into the image of Christ. For what purpose? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So as we think about this instruction that he's given us as we meet in this place and to let everything be done for building up, we do that so that we, we, we demonstrate our God, his character, the giftedness that he's given us. But we also do that so that we're not deceived. Because, because in the variety of teaching and ministering that we receive, our thoughts are conformed and our minds are transformed. And we, we cease to become susceptible to the deceits of this world as we sit under godly teaching. So he says, let all things be done for building up. And then he says, I, I, want, I want us to look at one other thing that is key in this first verse. Because we, we've dealt with everything else that happens there. But he starts this verse by saying, what then, brothers? Well, what then what? Like, how do you start a sentence with what then? Well, what then means we got to look up and see what's going on to understand what he's saying. What then about? Well, what he said right before that was where we left off last week when we were talking about these two sort of hypothetical scenarios that Paul offers, right? Where he says, imagine an unbeliever or an outsider comes into your service and all of you guys are speaking in tongues. What is he going to think? He's going to think y'all are crazy. And then as a counterpoint, imagine an unbeliever or outsider comes into your church, but you're all prophesying and you're un unveiling scripture and he's seeing it change you. Instead, that person is going to repent and he's going to fall on his face and he's going to worship. And he's going to say, truly God is in this place. And then Paul says, what then? Well, what then is th the character that we see in God is that there is orderliness and understanding. And that ought to be exemplified in his church, he makes that, uh, Paul makes that point explicitly uh, just a, a verse or so later. If you look down in 33, he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. How, how many of you guys know that? How many of you guys know that there is nothing that God has created that does not have a purpose and is not by design and is not with intention? We might not know it all. We might not be able to look at a thing and say, I know exactly what the purpose is that God created that for. But he didn't do anything without purpose and without intention. He is not a God of confusion and of chaos. He is a God of order and of peace and of purpose. And he has purposed everything that we see. 
And so also his church ought to be the same way. It ought not to be a place of confusion. It ought to be a place where anybody could walk in. Now, apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't have any ability to, to really read God's word and it to be illuminated in our lives, but anybody ought to be able to walk into this place and understand at least what's going on, be able to figure out that there's some order to what's going to happen, uh, and, and, and be able to understand on some level. It ought not to be a place of confusion. And so encouragement is the goal and orderliness as we seek to learn from each other. Also, a church walking in the ways of the Lord ought to observe instructions for a little bit of, again, caution, like we said last week, a little bit of uh, maybe pumping the brakes, but avoiding temptation with tongues. That, that as much as we try to take a well-rounded approach to looking at the gift of tongues last week, and that's still my hope, there is also a temptation to avoid because of all the things that we talked about, all the things that we see if we just look up in, uh, in that passage in verses 6 through 17, all of the reasons that he gives, right? He talks about how there, there's this potential for it to be vanity, like it's just speaking into the air. He talks about how it has this potential to build yourself up instead of be for building others up. He, he talks about how it just has this, this possibility to be like noise that we can't interpret and we don't understand what's going on. He gives us all of these reasons that we might have caution about the gift of speaking in tongues. But then he also says, but don't forbid it. It's gift of the Spirit. He says of himself, he says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. I thank God of that, right? But here he gives us some really clear advice on what to avoid so that we can deal with this temptation and deal with this issue well because of exactly what he'll say. Look, let's, let's take a look at verse 27. He says, if anybody speaks in a tongue, well, the first thing he says, let there, let there be only two or at most three. And I can tell you right now, he doesn't mean two or three at the same time because then he goes on to say, and each in, in, in turn. He means, let, if anybody does, first off, the language there says it's not required for in a service for people to speak in tongues. But if anybody does... Let there be only two, or at most three, because part of the temptation here is that, just like we, we use in our beginning example, that one person is speaking in tongues, and then we're like, well, man, that person is, sure is spiritual. Let me, I mean, I guess I should be speaking in tongues, and then by, by the time you know it, you got seven people speaking in tongues, nobody to interpret, and so there's no benefit. And so he says, let there be, he, get, he gives us some strict commands. He says, let there be two or at most three. He says, let them each take a turn. So not everybody at the same time, not, not all craziness, uh, just like this scenario he described earlier, but also let someone interpret. Uh, those are his three clear instructions. If there are going to be people exercising the gift of speaking in tongues in the assembly, then it ought to be at, at a minimum, meaning no more than two or three people, they ought to be orderly in that they are taking turns, and there has to be somebody there to interpret. Why? Because of everything that we covered last week, because the purpose of this assembly as we meet together is for the building up of the body, and if you can't understand what is being said, 
then you can't be being built up. I, I had somebody share with me a story of a church they visited a number of years back, and, and they came in and they said almost the whole service was people speaking in tongues, and, and, and the person told me, you know, I, I didn't really know what to think about it one way or the other because I hadn't really studied the issue, but the thing that I did really walk away with was I don't have any idea what happened. I was there for, you know, an hour and a half, and I don't know what happened. And Paul says that's not, that's not orderly. That's not exemplifying the character of God. If there are going to be these gifts, then there has to be an orderliness to it, and there has to be someone to interpret. And then not only that, he gives us the instructions of what to do if we can't follow those instructions, right? He says, but if there's no one to interpret, what ought they to do? Keep silent. If there's nobody there to interpret what you're about to say, then you ought to just keep it to yourself. And, and this sets up a series of instructions where the solution to our inability to abide by those instructions is silence. So in a minute, when we get to deal when we deal with let the women be silent in church, recognize that this is a pattern where he lays out the instruction. And then the solution to the uh, failure to follow that instruction is that they ought not disrupt what's going on in the church. They ought to be silent. But the last thing I want you guys to see there about avoiding that temptation with tongues is that silence doesn't mean he's squashing that gift that potentially is given to them by the Holy Spirit. Because look at what he says. He doesn't say just, he didn't say just shut up. He says, keep silent in the church, and he should speak to himself and to God. He doesn't say, don't use your gift. He doesn't say, if you've been given the gift of tongues, but there's nobody there to interpret, just don't use it, period. He says, let that conversation be between him and God. And, and that way it won't disrupt the service. It won't cause confusion with what's going on with everybody else. It won't sow discord or encourage somebody else that doesn't have the gift to act like they do. All of those are solutions that are solved by just us recognizing some reasonable, some reasonable terms. I would almost say like kindergarten terms, right? Like, all right, one person at a time now. You know, uh, we're going to let one person speak. Everybody can't talk. And we've got to be able to understand what you're saying or otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to have to be silent. And that communication can just be between them and the Lord. So avoiding temptation with tongues. But then he moves on to talk about prophecy. And so I want us to see, I want us to see how he gives us instruction for embracing thoughtful prophecy. As a church that wants to walk in the ways of the Lord, he gives us instructions to observe for embracing thoughtful prophecy. I already said last week that Paul clearly sees that there is some significant benefit to prophecy because he makes it clear in his previous argument that, that teaching is to be encouraged above gifts that seem super spiritual like, like tongues. But here he gives us some, some more instruction. And I want you guys to notice, because there's a word in the middle that I put in there, thoughtful. It's not just embracing prophecy above all else, embracing teaching above all else, but it's embracing thoughtful prophecy and teaching. Look at, look at what he says. In verse 29, he moves on to start talking, uh, moves from talking about tongues to start talking about prophecy. And he says, let two or three 
prophets speak. Okay, so this is slightly a different instruction than he gives on tongues, right? Because tongues is, if there is anybody that's speaking in tongues, let it not be more than two or potentially three. But here he says, if there is someone to prophesy, or, or not if there is someone to prophesy, there, there must be someone to teach in every service. And let two or three prophets speak. And so there's not only that same instruction to, to minimize, to some extent, there's somebody who should teach, but we should minimize how many people. And I just want to ask you to think about that for a second, because you're like, well, why would we want to restrict that? Well, imagine you came in here, and when I was done, which is going to be probably close to 12 o'clock, uh, based on how the last service went, and it's, sometimes it's hard to wait till 12 o'clock, but imagine when I'm done, four more people get up after that right? How productive is that for the building up of the body? It's not. How many things can you learn in one given period and obey if that is the goal? If the goal is building up and for us to be conformed into the image of Christ and learn from his word, having six people teach you something, it's not productive for that. And so he says, let two or, or three people speak. But again, it's not all at the same time. In fact, if you look uh, if you look down there in verse 30, it says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So there, there's, there's a clear command, again, that multiple people shouldn't be teaching, even though two or three prophets are allowed in a service, there, multiple people shouldn't be teaching multiple things at the same time. It should be one at a time. But it also, I want you to see what the instruction is for everybody else. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others do what? What? Okay. Has anybody got something different? Yep, keep silent, and then weigh it. Weigh it. That's the part that we miss sometimes. I don't know if you know this, but your job when you are in here is not to make sure we make it through all the text or just listen as things are talked about, or run the countdown clock to make sure I get out on time. It's to weigh it. To weigh what is said. Weigh it against what? Weigh it against what you've already learned from the Bible. Weigh it against something else that you know. Weigh it against what the world is telling you. And to come to conclusions that say, this is the word of God, or in some, of, in some churches, maybe... It isn't, and the people need to be weighing that and recognizing that the things that they're being told don't match up with what the Word of God says. But in any case, our obligation is to weigh what is said. And if we're going to weigh it, then we're left with a choice. Once we've weighed it, we either do it or we don't. But there, there is no, there's no room for... Just sitting and listening. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, y'all be silent and just let the person finish saying what they got to say. We weigh it to understand whether it is truth, whether it is from God or it's not. And if we weigh it and we determine that it's from God and you are a follower of Christ, then there is no option. If you've weighed it and determined it's from God, your option is to obey and to carry it out. And that's it. But, we, but it must be weighed. We don't have to accept everything that we're told. We have to think about it. Marry it up with Scripture. Determine if it's truth. And then act on it if we've come to believe that it is. And then the other things that I want you to see in there is that there is a deference as well. Look at what it says about 
the revelations and the other people that would be prophets of the church. It says if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. One person can't just hog everything. For you can all prophesy one by one. For what purpose? So that all may learn and that all may be encouraged. And that all doesn't just include you all. It includes the one that would teach as well. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I, I want to tell you something in case, in case you don't know this either. The people that teach in this church are greatly encouraged by the other people that teach in this church. Just because you have been given a position to teach somewhere does not mean that you are the expert on everything that could possibly be said. And as we sit under each other's teaching, we all learn. And we all get to weigh it. And we all get to grow. And we all get faced with things that are sin in our lives. And we all have the opportunity to repent. That's, that's what he's saying here is he's saying, don't just pick a prophet and go, well, everything that they say is, you know, perfect. You got to weigh it. And they, that person shouldn't think that everything, that they have nothing to learn from anybody else. When somebody else is teaching, they should sit and listen and do the same thing and weigh it. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So we should embrace thoughtful teaching that allows us to grow in our wisdom and our obedience. All right, and then moving on to our third point, a church walking in the ways of, I'm sorry, our fourth point, of the Lord observes instruction for leading our women well. Because anytime I see something like this, I know that there's an issue to be understood. And we could, and lots of people do, look at this verse and just go, okay, well, women ought to be silent, period. That's the end of it. We're, we're, we're not going to do that, but we're also not going to take the other approach. We're not going to take the other approach and go, well, this was just something that was written in a day and a time, and we don't need to listen to it at all. What we really need to do is we need to understand what the Bible teaches about the differences and similarities between men and women before we can understand what this passage has to tell us. So I want to take you on a journey. This is where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time. And, and, and that journey starts in Genesis. So if you got your Bible out, just open it right to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Because the first thing that I want us to see as we think about this issue or of what is the responsibility on men and what is the responsibility on women and how we deal with this command on the instruction of what women ought to do in worship is the first thing that I want you to see is that both men and women were created in God's image. And we see that right there in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. And you're like, John, that says man. That, that word actually means mankind or humankind. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see even in the creation account that both men and women are created in the image of God. And both have unique things to bring to how we display the character and the image of God. Even though we're both created in the image of God, that doesn't mean that there aren't differences in the way that God has created 
our purposes. Look at what it says right below that in verse 28. You get the very first command right after the Bible describes how God created man and woman in his image. You get the very first instruction and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And I want to tell you something this morning, even though it's only, it's only tangentially related to the conversation that we're having, God, in this command, tells us exactly what it means to be a man and to be a woman. And you need both in order to fulfill this command. You, he made man and woman Male and female, he made them in his own image, and then he gave them a command to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, fill the earth with his image. And the only way that you can do that, no matter what the news says, the only way that you can multiply and fill the earth is if you have a man and if you have a woman. There is no other way. It doesn't matter what you can do with science. That's still something you can't do. And, and so we see this uniqueness in the way that God has created men and women to complement each other, to fulfill his purpose in spreading his image across the entirety of the world. But we also see a difference in the need for man versus the need for woman. And, and still in the creation account, I want you to see it. Not only did he create them both in his image, but he created them differently. Differently in the way that he created them, right? Adam was made what? From the dust. And Eve was made from Adam. But I also want you to see what God had to say about this. In verse, chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. If the only role that was ever needed, the only purposes that were ever to be fulfilled were that of a man, then that sentence makes no sense. Because he wouldn't have needed a helper. Right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be necessary. And yet, God said it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And they look all around. Adam's naming all the animals, and there was not a helper found fit for him. So it didn't come from anywhere else. Instead, it came from the man. And then in verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God, from the very beginning, creates both men and women in his own image displaying his characteristics, but he gives them different purposes. There is a need for both. There is, it is not one or the other. Both are needed in order to display the full character and the full glory and the full image of God and to multiply and to fill this earth. And then across the Bible, of course we know that we see men doing a lot of amazing things, but we see women in God's plan, doing amazing things. We see Rahab the prostitute very early in the Old Testament, right? As the spies go out to check out Jericho, they're checking out the promised land. They come into Jericho, they're worried they're going to be caught. Rahab 
because she fears God, takes them in, lets them down out a window, right? And because of that, God spares her when they come to seize the city. Then you see Ruth, a a woman who was not part of God's people, but married into a family that worshiped and feared God. And then her husband dies and all of his brothers die and and her father-in-law dies. And nobody is left but Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law. And so Ruth, because she's a woman who fears God, takes Naomi, she says, I'm not going to leave you, and goes back with her to her family's land and ends up being redeemed by her kinsman, Boaz. And the Bible tells us that Boaz and Ruth, they fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. And then we see Esther, right? You guys, I know this, this is a church that knows Esther 4.14, if they don't know any other part, right? But we see that the Lord has ordained Esther for this event where she is the person that that enables the rescue of her people. And we see Deborah in Judges in place of Barak. Barak is supposed to be commanded by the Lord to go and lead, and yet he won't, and Deborah steps up and does it for him. And we see Mary, who ends up being the mother of Jesus. And we see both Marys who are the witnesses to the, cruci- or to the resurrection in a time and a day and an age when women couldn't be witnesses to anything. They're the first two people to see that the tomb is empty. And then you see, even as we move across the New Testament, you see Lydia, who, who Paul met in Philippi, who the Bible tells us she was a trader of purple goods who was from Thyatira and she was living in Philippi and she hears the gospel and receives it, her and her whole household, and she invites them in and keeps them up and, and is, is obviously a part of the responsibility for what we see happen in the church there in Philippi. But also, she's from Thyatira. We have no biblical evidence of a church that, of any gospel mission to Thyatira, and yet in Revelation, Christ through John speaks directly to this church. And the the only thing that we can conclude is that Lydia may have taken this gospel message back to Thyatira when she went back to her hometown. And that's the reason that people there believe. We see God all across the Bible use women for amazing things. This is not a message in this instruction that demeans the capabilities of women. And some people would say, the only time we see women take on these roles is in the absence of a man. And sometimes that's true. Deborah and Barak, that's true, right? Barak would not do what God commanded for the judges, and so Deborah did it. Probably also with Lydia, that's true, right? Like probably if there was a man in that part of Asia that was a follower of God that the gospel could have come to, that God could have sent out to the rest of the world to take this message, he he probably would have done it, and they weren't there. But the rest of those, those were all things that God did because those people were uniquely women. Joseph didn't carry the baby Jesus in his womb because men don't have a womb. Because God had created. I, I know it seems ridiculous that we have to say that. But God had created and purposed a woman to accomplish this mission. And the same thing with Ruth and the same thing with Esther. There's no way that anybody else would have been able to exert that type of influence 
over a king who is hell-bent on destroying a people other than his wife, other than somebody that he's brought into his court, a woman. So there are times when a woman leads in absence of a man's leadership, but there's a, a lot of times in the Bible where God, because he has specifically and intentionally created women differently, that the role is only suited for a woman. I also want you to know that we carry the same spirit. And we talked about this when we talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We share the same spirit, all of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the same Holy Spirit. It is the one that provides us the gifts. There is nowhere in the Bible that it tells us that it provides different gifts. He provides different gifts to men than women. In fact, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where, where there's this prophecy about how God is going to destroy Israel, and then he relents, and he starts talking about the rescue that's going to come to them. He starts to talk about the future coming of the Holy Spirit, and he says, in those days, my spirit will be poured out on all of mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and old men will dream dreams, and young men will see visions, and your male and your female servants will prophesy. And so that passage is super clear. But if you're like, well, that's Old Testament, not, let me give you Galatians 3, where it says, in Christ, there is neither, what? Jew nor Gentile, what? Male nor female, slave nor free. There is great equality in the gospel because there is great redemption in the gospel, because we're all desperately, whether you're a man or a woman, we all stand in the same state, condemned before God, apart from the rescue of the gospel. And when we have that rescue and that inheritance, it's the same. We stand in the same place before God, and we're filled with his spirit, and it gives us very similar gifts. And some people would say, and this is where we run into, this is where we run into an issue. We run into a fallacy because some people would say that fill in the blank for your favorite female teacher. Man, she can preach just as good as a man can. She can teach just as good as a man can. That's because we're filled with the same Holy Spirit and he's poured out that gift in an abundance on her. She should just be a pastor somewhere, and that's where you create a problem. Because just because we have great equality under the cross, just because we've been gifted with the gift, the same spirit, does not mean that God has given us the same roles and the same authority. And I want, I want to take you guys to Ephesians chapter 5. We just looked at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you got six or seven or ten fingers, just kind of keep one each place and we'll, we'll work our way through that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. This sounds just like what we already read in 1 Corinthians 11, right? Where he talked about the husband is head of the wife just as, as Christ is head of the church. Even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There is an explicit instruction 
and an order to the roles that we are to fulfill as man and as woman. And, and one thing I want you guys to see, because this instruction for order and for leadership and for submission isn't just the man's the boss, period. It's not some macho, chauvinistic appeal. I want you to see. Look for yourself. There are three verses right there that are about what wives ought to do. And the summation of it is just follow their husband's leadership. Then there are nine verses about how the husband ought to lead. Because with that, with that responsibility, with that authority, with that role, comes a heavy burden. And what I want you guys to see in this passage is that Paul compares the role of the wife to the role of the church in those three verses and the role of the husband to the role of Christ in the following nine verses. And, and what I know to be true is that Christ has done everything. He's done the nine and more. And all I'm expected to do, praise the Lord, is the three. Is just submit to his leadership. If, if you've ever struggled with this relationship between a man and a woman and understanding the roles that God has given us, can I tell you, ladies, that there is great freedom in this. As a person who fills also that role of the church that then must submit to Christ. Because I am challenged day in and day out about the giant burden that it is to be in this place and to be given the task that I've been given. And yet, I have an easy way out. The right way out. Rather than trying to muscle my way through it and figure it out for myself, I can just submit to the leadership of Christ who has done the nine. And all I need to do is just follow. And ladies, that, that, that's an instruction for you. Let your husbands lead you. There is a greater responsibility, there is a greater burden, and there isn't a greater accountability one day on you guys, husbands, fathers, for the way that you have led your wives and the way that you have led your children in Christ. Don't trade that role with your wife. Don't put onto her the responsibility that's yours. So even as we see great equality under the cross and we see how we're all created in his image and we see how we've all been given gifts by the Spirit, we see a difference in the roles and the authority that we've been given. And then the last thing that I want you to see before we flip back to this text and address it, because, again, I, I do thoroughly believe that there are so many things that a woman across the Bible, across history, are so capable and so able and have been gifted by God to be able to do for the sake of his mission. But there are some things that the Bible says that a woman should not do. And we find most of those in either 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is where we're going to look at, or also in a parallel passage in Titus. And I'm just going to lay them out there for you. The first one we see is in 3.1. That first little section there tells us about the responsibilities for a pastor or overseer or elder in a church. It says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we see in this passage explicit instructions of what makes up the character of a person that would hold the office of an elder or pastor or leader within the church. And we see very clearly that God has said that this office is explicitly restricted to men because of that greater responsibility that he has given us. And some of you would look at that in the churches that we see around us and say, well, I see women doing it just as good as a man can. To that, I would say, if we looked at this passage and I said, well, what if, okay, so we're saying that maybe a pastor doesn't have to be a man. What if he was violent instead of being gentle? Would that would that be a deal breaker? What if, what if he was a drunkard? What, what if he was not thought of well by outsiders? What if his house was constantly in chaos? Where would we draw the line to say, no, that doesn't make a person that is fit for the pastor? If we're going to accept one, we're going to accept all of them. And so the Bible has clearly said that there are some jobs that are explicitly restricted to men. Likewise, it goes on to describe the qualifications for deacons, which, amongst other things, have the very similar qualifications of them being the husband of one wives and their wives likewise being dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That's verse 11. And then verse 12, the husbands of one wives and, the, and that they uh, manage their household and their children well. So we see clear restrictions on two things the eldership, the leadership of the church on being deacons. And then the last thing that I want you to see that the Bible places a restriction on is uh, just up a little bit in the very end of chapter 2. It says, I desire in, in verse 8 that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. Can I just take a sidebar for a second before I, I make my point in the next verse? Because a lot of us would look at that passage and say, well, man, I mean, that's a list of stuff that women can't do or shouldn't do. Can I point to something that's beautiful in there? Look at what he says. Rather than adorning yourself with fancy things, instead do it with modesty. And then verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, the most beautiful thing that you could adorn yourself with with good works. It's just, a, it's just a, a beautiful thing that we, we would like to take and twist and be like, oh, this is just a list of things that women can't do. No, it's encouragement. Adorn yourself with good works, ladies. There's nothing that makes you more beautiful than that. Let a woman learn, verse 11, quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So we get three in all of that, in everything that we looked at, we've been looking at this for 20 minutes. In everything that we looked at, 
We see so many things that women are so able to do and so capable of doing and God gifted to do. And we see three things that the Bible tells us is not an office that's reserved for women. The, the office of pastor or elder, deacon, or in teaching in some sort of leadership and authority over a man. And so we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, and he tells them, he says, In all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you of the picture that we created at the beginning. And, and I want to I infer a little bit. Not, it's not a very long inference, so I, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll join me there. That probably part of the issue that Paul was speaking into was two things. It was orderliness in that as somebody was teaching, the women, clearly based on his instruction, would be speaking up and, and going, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or I have a question about this. Or that doesn't match up with what I think about this. And that just like all the other issues that he's addressing, that caused chaos in the assembly. But two, and this is more important than the other, that, that there was an issue going on with the leadership of their husbands. And that's why I said that the things that we have to do is lead our women well, not make our women silent. Because that's, that, that's not the issue. The issue is that He's given the instruction for them to ask their husbands. And so the question has to be asked, well, were their husbands people that they knew were walking with the Lord? Were their husbands people that were thoughtful in their study? Were their husbands people that they could come to and ask, well, what did he mean by this? And I have to ask us the same thing. Husbands, are you leading your wife in a way that she can come to you? And one, know that she can ask her questions without being ridiculed. But two, to know that you're going to provide a thoughtful response, not something flippant, but something that is well studied and thought out. Can she trust your leadership in your household? And if not, you ought to do something about that. Because the issue is not that the women... We're asking questions. The issue is that they had nobody else to go to other than to stand up in the middle of the service and go, I don't know what this means. Help me. And he says, you've got a husband sitting right next to you. Ask him. Let him lead you. Husband, step up and lead. Be the person that your wife can look to and know that you're walking with the Lord and know that she can come to you with questions. The issue, the reason why he says it's shameful is the same reason why in, in chapter 11 he alluded to that with the head coverings. Because it misplaces the roles that God has given us. And he has placed that authority and that responsibility on the man and therefore the accountability for it. And heaven forbid that we put that off onto our wives. The accountability that sits squarely on my shoulders. Let them ask their husbands. Husbands lead well. And the last thing I want you to see is the band comes. A church walking in the ways of the Lord observes instruction 
for humble recognition of our responsibility. I want you to see the way that he closes out this passage. I love Paul. Maybe it's because I'm like sarcastic by nature. Like that the sarcasm is so much. I see you. I see you, Val, laughing because uh, I know that you're sarcastic too. I see it in there, right? Because he's like, or was it from you that the word of God came? Like, are you the ones that told yourself about all of this and about all the gospel? Or did I bring it to you? Because if I brought it to you, then you ought to be listening. He's recognizing already that there is going to be people that are listening to this direct teaching that he's providing rather than all the examples and saying, you should do this and you should do that. And they're, gonna, they're already thinking like, I don't know if I want to obey that or not. And he says, well, were you the one that the word of God came from? No. The obvious answer is no. And all of us sit in this place. Some 215 years later, because the word of God came to some people in this area, and by the spirit of God and the favor of God, this church has continued all of that time. And so there is a need for a humble recognition of our responsibility in the way that we shepherd this church, recognizing that we stand on the shoulders of so many people for millennia that have come before us and have brought this message to us. And we have a responsibility to them. And he also says, or are you the only ones that it's reached? Or some translations, did it stop with you? So first he's like, well, did it come from you? And they're like, nah. And he's like, well, did it stop with you? Are you the only people that heard the gospel? No. And praise the Lord that right now we have a global church. I don't mean we as in Hepzibah. I mean we as in followers of Christ have a church body that is all over the world that we are responsible to. Because the gospel didn't stop with us. It went to all of them as well. And so as we think about how we ought to behave ourselves in this assembly as followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to the, the church across the whole world and to not mislead them and to not deceive them and to not set ourselves up as doing something that the Bible would say that we should not do. But we also have a responsibility. If it's, if it's the will of the Lord, to the future church. And it's something that I think we don't spend enough time thinking about. But there'll be a day when you and I aren't here. And if Christ hasn't returned, it's my prayer that there will be, whether it's called Hepzibah or not, churches in this place that are carrying on that gospel message and we have a responsibility to them. And that should make us humble. Because every choice that we make as we seek to follow Christ impacts what they will see as important and what they will believe and how well they'll be set up for what will be ahead of them. So we have a responsibility not just to the gospel that's come to us, but to where it's also headed. If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if he does not recognize this, he is not recognized. He says, look, not just if you're a teacher, even if you're anybody who is following the Lord, you ought to be able to hear in this truth and you ought to be able to recognize it and, if you, and you ought to obey it. And then he says, if you don't want to recognize it, then you're not recognized. And it's kind of, it seems like, you know, nana nana boo boo, but I don't think that's it. I think, I think his point is how how do you expect to be 
recognize if you fail to recognize other people's leadership. You want people to listen to what you have to say, but you don't want to listen to what anybody else has to say. But it's also that for those that the Spirit of God is dwelling in, we recognize the authority of God and what is being taught, and we submit ourselves to it. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And now we just have time to reflect. We covered a lot. I'm not under any delusion that there's not a need to respond to what was taught, and that's what this time is for. And for some of you guys, that's just to get right with the Lord. For some of you gentlemen, maybe it's the chance to take your spouse by the hand and to pray with her and to agree to lead her well in a way that she can trust you and follow you. Maybe for some of you, you've heard this and you're like, I need, to, I need to be a part of this place. I've been waiting. I need to join in the mission that's here. And some of you guys, maybe today is the day of salvation. You need to follow Christ and you need to know the forgiveness and the freedom that we've been talking about. However the Lord is leading you, would you take this time to respond? I'm gonna be right here. I'm gonna be sitting on this front row. And if you need somebody to talk to, you can come and talk to me. But would you pray with me? And then would you talk to God? God, we thank you. We love you. We know that it's because you love us, Lord, that you give us difficult things sometimes for us to understand, Lord, and you illuminate areas in our life that are so in contradiction to what your word says, Lord. Would you help us to walk in faithfulness to your commands, recognizing that your ways are infinitely better than our ways, Lord? Would you convict us? Would you change us, Lord? Would you help us to respond to you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 